Hello and welcome back to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, ecological and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is the economist John Harvey. John's a professor at the Texas Christian University, and he joined me to discuss the origins of capitalism and the alternatives to capitalism. I so, so enjoyed this because he really laid out essentially how we went from uh, Adam Smith and the suggestion of the free market to, you know, the nightmare dystopia that we live in today and how ideology plays a role in that, how the relationship with government plays a role with that and how, you know, neoclassical economists are driving the world over a cliff, uh, much like what Steve Keen says, but that also they genuinely believe it and here's why they believe it. It was so interesting speaking with him. Uh, he's also full of anecdotes. It was really great fun. And I think what's most important is the message he says at the end of the episode that economics is dead. And if we want to change the world, which we must, we have to look to other professions and other kinds of people to do so. And he explains who he thinks those people are. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you do, please share it amongst your friends, family, and community. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or also on Patreon. And a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who support this project and keep it going every week. John, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So could you give a brief background of your career as an economist? And then we'll yeah, jump into... Um the rest. In fact, uh, if I may, let me back up all the way to my undergrad. Uh, oh my God, because yes. that, that actually turns out to be very important in terms of, 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 you know, where this may be a link into the issues that are important in your show. My first major was physics. Uh, I have mm. no earth. Well, I do know why, because I grew up during the space race and I wanted to be an astronaut. So, <laughs> but uh, it turned out to be incredibly boring. Uh, no offense to any physicists out there. So, and I realized I, I really enjoy the social sciences. Uh, so I went to political science, uh, but I missed the modeling, the formal modeling. So then I ended up in economics and, and economics right. was, was absolutely uh, perfect for me. It was a social science, which emphasized the modeling. And so, you know, that, that became uh, actually I double majored in economics and political science. And then mm -hmm. my senior year, I met a girl who was at work right now, um, but she still had two more years to go. So I stayed at the university of Tennessee for my PhD. Now, um, I'll get back into this more later if it comes up, but but partway through the PhD, I got to thinking, oh my God, have I made a mistake? This is that this is so incredibly unrealistic and, and uninspiring. And this um, is an economics PhD. Economics PhD. Right. That's exactly right. Um, and with, with with incredible things like, for example, that we we learned a model where the Great Depression was because of uh, let's see, prices fell which firms realized, but workers didn't. So firms lowered wages and workers quit voluntarily. So 25% unemployment in the United States during the Great Depression was because people quit voluntarily, which is insane. I mean, there was no welfare. There was no unemployment insurance. Their only choice was to work. Uh, and this was the kind of stuff I was learning in class. And I thought, oh, what have I done? So mm. then one day, 
the hand of God reached down. It turned out to be the hand of Paul Kubik, actually, but I didn't know that at the time. But, but <laughs> Paul had left a book of his on my desk called A Guide to Post-Keynesian Economics. So, so I picked it up and started reading through it. And, and post-Keynesian economics is really the economics of Keynes. Sorry, this, this is uh, this always... No, keep going. It's yeah, interesting. Keynesian economics is not the same thing as what Keynes said. Right. So uh, right. post-Keynesian yeah, Keynesian economics is actually... In fact, Joan Robinson at Cambridge called Keynesian economics, she called it bastard Keynesianism because it was the bastard offspring of the neoclassical mainstream and what Keynes had to say. And okay. it left out... And I'll tell you the, the quick and easy way to differentiate the two. Um, neoclassical Keynesian economics, or, or what's just called Keynesian economics, still assumes that the economy fixes itself. We yeah. might need to step in and help it um, a little bit to get it to do this faster, but it's still going to fix itself. Keynes said, no, it does. It can break down with high levels of unemployment and stay there indefinitely. So that part of Keynes, which was so incredibly important, got left out of mainstream economics entirely. So right. that was in this book, though. This idea going back to Keynes, uh, and I thought, okay, I'll do your PhD, um, and then I'll do what mm -hmm. I want afterwards, uh, which mm -hmm. I did. I was naive. I didn't realize that's not really possible. I just got very lucky coming to the university I did. Um, but uh, so then I came to TCU, Texas Christian University, which is not really very Christian. Uh, my my daughter, mm -hmm. well, the one holdover, like so many universities, it was founded by you know religious uh, order, and uh, the one holdover is that everyone has to take one religion class. So my daughter right. that went to TCU, she took Rastafarianism. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> which is still technically Christianity, but nevertheless, uh, you didn't have to take Christianity at all. Mm. So I went to TCU, though. The research I wanted to do was rewarded. I didn't realize that wasn't true everywhere. Um, but uh, so I've been there uh, since 1987. Uh, so now I'm full professor and they can't take that away. And I've been department chair twice, which I will never do again. Uh, and... Um, it's been a good place to be, but good places to be as a non-mainstream economist are, are, are shrinking. So um, why, just out of interest, why do you think that your university rewarded your kind of research? And what kind of research were you doing exactly? Ah, I know exactly why they did. In the U.S., there was a school of thought uh, that evolved in late 1800s, early 1900s called institutionalism. And it was founded by Thorsten Veblen, who was known for uh, conspicuous consumption. He made up that idea um, and... Uh, pecuniary emulation, trying to spend money in a way that emulates how the rich spend their money, that sort of thing. Uh, and it was very popular in Texas, of all places, uh, in Oklahoma. So uh, at, the, at Texas Christian University, TCU, there were a number of institutionalists. In fact, uh, I got my job because I didn't even apply to TCU initially because I was lazy. They wanted a, a writing sample, and I didn't want to put together a writing sample. But then the <laughs> department chair at University of Tennessee and a bunch of the people at University of Tennessee and had also come from Texas, strangely enough, and were institutionalists. But the department chair said, have you applied to TCU? And I said, no. He said, we'll do. Uh, <laughs> because the department chair at TCU had been his office mate. Um, right. And so anyway, the, I, I then applied and, and got the job here. And so then it's very common in academia for there to be a ranking of journals in the department. Yeah. Uh, you know, think outside the box. Come up with new stuff as long as it fits in these 10 journals. All right. So... <laughs> um, it, it, it's it's very damaging. Uh, yeah. And the same thing has happened in Europe, too, where they have the, all these rankings and so forth for universities. Well, then you have to maximize the ranking. There's no yeah. way to do something different. TCU, so therefore, the, the places I publish would have been the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics, which is the, the post-Keynesian stuff that, that's closer to what Keynes originally did. 
in the Journal of Economic Issues, which is the Veblen stuff. Mm. Well, I didn't realize this at the time, but had I gone somewhere else, those wouldn't have really counted. But at TCU, those were like, oh, sure, those are great publications. We, we, you know, we believe in that background. So I, it was just luck uh, right. that I ended up here. And um, also means, I mean, not, not that it's a bad place. It's not at all. Uh, but uh, it also meant I'm kind of stuck here, uh, mm. that, that it was really hard to find a, you know, find a job somewhere else. But I mean, I didn't want to, but mm. if I had wanted to, then that would have been very difficult to do so. Yeah, this is what I've gathered from Steve uh, Keen that, right. I mean, he's just like, you know, neoclassical econom economists are destroying the world and are the right, reason for right, the right. climate crisis. Um, yeah. But that it seems despite more and more and more people coming out, evidence coming out that neoclassical, the, the ideology of neoclassical economists is that it is an ideology, not a science. And there is so much to support that the economy works very, very differently. Um, you know, the, their main guys are still winning Nobel Prizes and writing policies and running the yeah, world off a cliff. Because they're giving out the Nobel Prizes. So, you know, it's not <laughs> terribly surprising that, that they would also get them. Uh, you know, I'll tell you something about um, neoclassical economics um, and neoclassical economists. The, uh, people I, 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 you know, sort of socialize with on the Internet, uh, at, at, you know, say a number of times, well, it's a big conspiracy uh, that they all know it's not really true. That's not true. I mean, mm. I have known neoclassical economists all my, and these are from non-economists, by the way, um, you know, people mm. who are, are big into modern monetary theory, that sort of thing. I was like, well, that's not mm. actually true. I've known many, 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 most of the economists I know are neoclassicals, and they just honestly believe that's the way the world works. I mean, there, there, there's a very strong self-selection bias. If you yeah. don't think that's how it works, then you get out of getting a PhD, which is what I almost did. And in fact, at the last poll I saw, um, Economists, professional economists, PhDs, voted Democrat over Republican, a ratio of like two and a half to one. Now, I know oh, Democrat wow. is more neoliberal than it used to be, but that's yeah. always been true, is that economists tend to think of themselves as liberal. Um, right. So, and let me give you an example of, of um, what happens. I have a colleague, really, really great guy, um, and I uh, hope he doesn't listen to this, because uh, he might be able to figure out it was him. Uh, but then he also <laughs> probably laugh. Um, Back when I was department chair the first time, uh, he was not tenured yet. So I sat in on his class to, in order to write a review of, of his course. And he was talking about macroeconomics, uh, you know, uh, unemployment, inflation, GDP growth. And he was talking about when people save more money, this drives down interest rates and firms invest more. I was like, okay. So I, I, it was a very good lesson. Um, but I said to him afterwards, if people are saving more, then why would firms invest more? since people aren't buying stuff. He said, I don't know. I never thought about that. So, yes. I mean, if you don't think about stuff like that, have you heard of the article by um, Paul Romer? Paul Romer, who also won a Nobel Prize uh, not too long ago, neoclassical economist. Uh, and he, he, it's called The Trouble with Macroeconomics. You can look it up online. And he okay. says that for the past 30 years, uh, economics or macroeconomics, by this he means neoclassical, um, has gone backwards. And there was a version of the paper that he, he eventually amended that said that it really no longer qualifies as scientific research, that it's become so, uh, well, he, he says that, you know, things are actually determined in these models by like trolls, you know, that, that it's not actions that humans are carrying out. It's these sort of random shocks from elsewhere. It's trolls and fairies and, th and this sort of thing. And he's, he got a PhD in his, you know, school of thought. And I happened to be on a panel with him before he got the PhD. I like to think I put him over the top. Um, and he said that when he wrote this paper, he absolutely caught hell. 
um, from you know the, the 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 believers, not because they thought he was wrong, but because how dare he, you know, say bad things about their founders like Milton Friedman, mm-hmm. Robert Lew. How how dare he do that? He's like, but if they're wrong, they're wrong. So yeah. I really think a big factor nowadays is just self-selection. And I'll tell you this too. A lot of, of younger neoclassical economists don't even do macro anymore. They, they think it's ridiculous themselves. So they do all this micro stuff that honestly is not great So could either. you def- define quickly macro yeah. and micro as well for listeners? Now, that's a good question. Um, not every school of thought splits it up that way. Um, and, you know, you don't have, for example, uh, you know, Marxist thinking of, of economics as being micro and macro, it's just this is the way the capital system works. But in neoclassical economics, um, macro is the whole nation, for example. Uh, it's, and then you're talking about unemployment, inflation, uh, GDP growth, um, potentially income distribution, although they usually don't bring that up. Whereas micro is the economic behavior of the individual, uh, the individual right. firm or the individual household or whatever. And one of the central tenets of the of their micro is that social factors really are unimportant, which of course makes us kind of different from every other social science. Uh, that people act independently of each other; that they are not affected by everyone else's preferences. Oh come on! Oh I know, it's insane. Um, <laughs> and they have this rationality assumption uh, that everyone is rational. We explain this behavior by <laughs> that must be the rational way to do it. Um, yeah. and you know, it, it kind of boils down to if they didn't want to do it, they wouldn't have done it. So, okay. The people at, at Jonestown, when they all drank the Kool-Aid, you're right. They did it because they wanted to do it. But the really interesting question is why did they want to do it? Um, mm. and, uh, that's what institutionalism looks at. Whereas economics then says, oh, that's not us. That's sociology. Uh, and by the way, we make fun of sociology. So, you know, their questions really aren't important, uh, in the first place. So that's the yeah. micro and macro stuff, you know, and, and a lot of all of our newest economists in the department are all micro economists. And they all do things like see, real estate, um, natural resource stuff. Uh, and the natural resource stuff is, is not what we would hope it would be. It's all about, mm. well, uh, we charge firms for 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 polluting. Uh, we do mm. these cost benefit analyses. You know, can we afford really to you know not pollute that lake? Uh, and you can pay for the right to pollute it, and then you can sell the rights and so forth. It's all very market-oriented. Yeah. The Clean idea that credits. capitalism, it's, it's interesting. The idea that capitalism is part of the problem is there, but the idea that we should therefore shift significantly away towards, say, de- uh, degrowth, for example, is not there. It's like, well, we just amend mm-hmm. capitalism. So, But mm-hmm. they, uh, th- there's actually apparently a department in the U.S., and I, it wasn't identified in the article I was reading, that has considered no longer requiring that their graduate students take a class in macroeconomics. So you can have somebody graduate with a PhD in economics with no background in what causes GDP, unemployment, inflation, all the things that are most important to us. Instead, we're going to play around with math, um, which is fun. I mean, I was a physics major at first. Uh, But ultimately, I kind of wanted to solve world problems um, Mm. and not problems like should there be speed bumps in a neighborhood? Um, And... (laughs) I know that's interesting on some level. I don't want to, you know, we had a guy come to interview for a job with us and that was his paper. You know, does it really slow? Uh, did, what does it do to housing prices, having speed bumps in a neighborhood? And I just kind of feel like maybe there are bigger problems going on right now. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just finished watching um, 
Good Vibrations, which is a great, great film about the Irish punk uh, movement. And at one point, the uh, Royal Ulster Constabulary, they come into this uh, pub and they ask this girl if she's you know, of age to drink. And the, the, the star of the show says, excuse me, officer, I'd like to report a revolution outside. Um, but you know, you go ahead and check to see if she's 18 while the killing and the intimidation and so forth goes on. So that's kind of the way I feel about neoclassical micro. Mm. Yeah, that's great that speed bumps, you know, raise or lower, but we've got income distribution problems. We have climate problems that are existential uh, and, and so on. And economics is kind of giving up on looking at those. Or if you've talked to Steve Keen, looking at them in an extremely simplistic, biased way. And yet mm. these are, these people honestly think they're doing good. Um, mm. And, you know, the fellow I mentioned earlier that uh, I had observed his, his lecture, he has started emailing me things about what's bad about neoclassical economics. So he's, it, it kind of has to sit there for a while. You, know, you, you can't convert someone all at once. You have to plant a seed and have them think, yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. Uh, I mean, mm. same thing happened to me. I'd, I'd been trained one way. I, granted, I was already disappointed with it in graduate school, but um, it took a while to reject one thing after another. Because, you know, once you've learned it a certain way, then you frame the problem that way. Some guy named Einstein once said that um, uh, the theory, see, what you see depends on the theory you're using, or something like that, along those lines. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, the paradigm. Yeah. So then, I mean, I suppose the thing, because I know very little about uh, economics, I... Um, read a couple of books in 2016 uh i'm not sort of built for the the math part of it mm-hmm. um and i think that it's this really fuzzy realm that dominates so much of our uh individual social existence um and our professional existence our, our lived existence and yet it's not something very many of us understand um and i suppose one thing i'd be interested to kind of poke at with you would be like what is the difference between um, not yeah, economics and capitalism. Like, how is it? How has economics driven capitalism from Hayek and right. Friedman talking about the necessity of you know government intervention and regulating the market yeah. to this late stage, every man for himself, you know, cowboy capitalism? <laughs> how how did economics um drive that? Because I assume you know it would be economic theory that just kind of ran away with itself that did. Right. Um, actually, I have a book on this. Um, oh, fab. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and uh, Contending Perspectives in Economics. Um, it's kind of funny how I ended up writing it. Well, at, at our university, uh, some years ago, back before there were so many neoclassicals in the department, um, we were at a, a departmental retreat and somebody brought up that, hey, students sometimes, not, not complain per se, but say that, you know, I, I learned so-and-so in Dr. Harvey's class, then I learned so-and-so in Dr. Butler's class. Why was it so different? And so the idea came up, you know, that they're not real clear on the idea um, that there are many different schools of thought uh, in economics. In fact, we, we, um, uh, even though in, you know, political science or sociology or whatever, you might do different schools of thought, economics doesn't. Economics acts as if there's one school of thought and that's it. Indeed, there was a a, a pedagogical paper that came out once by a guy named John Siegfried with with a co-author I can't remember, where he said that, this was talking to high school students, don't tell them there's more than one school of thought because that might confuse them. Oh my God, it makes students excited. Oh, you mean so-and-so hates yeah. so-and-so? That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we decided to teach a class, not only teach it, 
but require a course of all our majors. The, the, the fact that we teach it makes us very unusual, but require it of all of our majors contending perspectives in economics, where you have to cover at least a couple of different schools of thought. When I do what I do with a, I guess with a shotgun approach, I do neoclassical, Marxist, Austrian, post-Keynesian, institutionalist, new institutionalist, feminist, and um, uh, ecological. But I wanted a book for this when I first taught it. And I found a book from a publisher, Edward Elgar, that was like 20 years old. Um, and also, it was a different author for every chapter. And it was also clear sometimes that the author writing the chapter didn't believe that school of thought. Okay, mm. well, I mean, that, that's not the right way to teach it. Uh, and mm -hmm. so I went to the Elgar booth uh, at a conference and spoke to it. Not the same Edward Elgar, by the way, that's a famous composer. It's, uh, he said, I asked him once if he was related. He said, probably, but uh, I mean, not, not that he was aware. But there's a big mm -hmm. publisher in economics and, and social sciences. Somehow he talked me into writing that book. He said, no, we don't okay. have a book. Um, why don't you do one? And I had absolutely no desire to do this. So anyway, I, I have a book on different schools of thought. And it goes mm -hmm. over, uh, in particular, and, and this is what I'm going to talk about now, how did neoclassicism end up pushing everyone else out? Um, yeah. So let me back up all the way to Adam Smith, right? So you know, have Adam Smith in, in 1776 um, and you know, pressing for, for free markets because his sense was that, and, and he was much deeper than this. He, he, really, he really was. But, but this is what people took away uh, and emphasized today. Everyone's greedy and everyone's rational. Therefore, if the government is granting monopolies, as they were uh, in England in the 18th century, then they're just going to screw us over. They're not, they're greedy and they're not stupid. So, you know, if I am the only licensed jam and jelly maker in England, then I haven't got to work myself to death, you know, to, to do. So he said, you know, what if we just say anyone can make jams and jellies? Um, then there's an incentive to please the consumer rather than to please the seller. So, the, so that's a very appealing idea, and I'm quite sure it works really well in some context. Uh, I always think of restaurants um, that now we, we also need to make sure that we, we um, inspect restaurants, otherwise they'd kill us all with, with poison. Uh, well, then they would shut down, as the uh, libertarians would say, but uh, I don't want to have somebody to, to die to find that out. But nevertheless, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, you see restaurants come and go um, as people, you know, well, I started to say stop eating Mexican food. I live in Texas, so that we don't stop eating Mexican food. But, okay, okay. but whatever the you know whatever the the style is, um, but um, then that leads into you know David Ricardo and Thomas Malthus and so forth. And by the Great Depression, there were uh, it, it wasn't all pro market, and uh, you you can pull pro market out of Smith there. And again, he was deeper than that. But but nevertheless, uh, we have the. We we have the the free market revolution in England that then you know the, the impact on the um, Irish famine is is, is very famous uh, that well we can't interfere with the market my gosh if we fed these people it would drive the prices down um, mm. and so uh, that really you know won over in England then um, but by World War by the Great Depression okay so we get we, we get Marx in in you know uh, mid eighteen hundreds uh, Keynes in the nineteen thirties. Of Thorsten Veblen in the late 1800s, and so we've got several different schools of thought, and there was some conversation among them. All right, so so it wasn't all capitalism, capitalism, capitalism yet. The and the Austrians, the Austrians are are in the mix by then. Um, it was a little bit broader than that, not a lot broader, but certainly the institutionalists had. Uh, you know, Keynes is saying let's keep as much of the capitalist system as we can, but let's get rid of the parts that really suck. Uh, and he also declared himself a, a socialist. 
the institutionalists are like, well, whatever works, works. I mean, so, you know, if, if that's a good solution in this context, that's great. If it's not, we'll do something else. Hmm. But then, you know, the Great Depression comes along, which gives the economics discipline, uh, the mainstream, a bad name. Because we went from, oh gosh, I have the data here close by, but uh, around 4% unemployment in the U.S. to almost 25 a couple of years later. And mm -hmm. you would think as a, and there's no social support system at this point. You would think that if I'm paying taxes or tuition dollar to support these professors, you'd think they'd have something to say about this and help us fix it. And it was mm -hmm. really confused. I mean, there were people that were saying the right thing and, you know, Keynes, for example, but, but the way he said it, it it's a hard book to read um, because he ended up having to sort of back off of things he believed uh, in order to make it understandable. So. Right. Anyway, uh, economics gets a bad reputation during the Great Depression. I, I've read a couple of different stories of how neoclassicism uh, uh, you know, sort of ended up being the school of thought and the one that pushes for capitalism. So this is one of the stories. Um, then World War II starts, and we're suddenly at full employment. Right? The, the problem of less than full employment is gone. The problem, of, the problem of the economy not fixing itself is gone, which mm. it didn't. I mean, the war actually fixed it. But mm. um, And suddenly a school of thought that focuses on the idea that everyone already has a job or they soon will, which is neoclassicism, well, they actually had some useful things to say because their school of thought focuses on how to allocate resources when they're all already being employed. Well, with 25% unemployment, we've got lots of un unemployed resources, uh, you know, people, obviously. And um, so as a consequence, uh, they actually had some useful answers, right? So, so that, was, uh, that was one part of the how they ahead of everyone mm. else. That's story one, that neoclassicism um, actually proved to be relatively useful through um, the war years because there was a period of very, very low unemployment. It was 1.8, 1.9% unemployment in the U.S. Mm. Uh, and so the problem that Keynes and the institutionalists are talking about isn't there, all right? So mm. uh, they don't have to worry about that. But really, I think the far bigger thing was the Cold War, um, that once World War II is over, any school of thought that says something that isn't consistent with, oh my gosh, capitalism is wonderful, is suspect. More than suspect, um, you could lose your job, right? Yeah. If you said anything that was negative. I, I, I have a, a second edition of my, of my book just came out and I really went back in and found a lot more uh, evidence for that, that uh, particular story. And oh my gosh, th th there was a story, I was reading, I think it was Congressional Quarterly, uh, reporting these wonderful findings of how many communist teachers we got rid of in California, how many we get rid of in, in you know in, in New York and so forth. One of them was a kindergarten teacher. They believed that a kindergarten teacher was pushing Marx, so they fired this person. Um, yeah. I, I found a letter from whatever the Harvard newspaper is, and these students said, "Look, you know this is uh, quashing um, academic freedom. Even people who wouldn't necessarily you know be Marxist or, or left-leaning are just keeping their mouths shut. They just don't even mm -hmm. want to raise the issue because you can lose your job over this. So um, apparently the, my professors at Tennessee, uh, who had been originally University of Texas and learned institutionalism, um, this was a big problem there. I mean, here in the state of Texas, we've got it again right now. Um, mm. and, and, you know, sort of vetting people on the basis of their uh, politics. And so this really beat Institu certainly Marxism, um, but institutionalism and post-Keynesian economics, both of which said 
there's a fundamental flaw in capitalism. You know, we can do things to address it, um, yeah. but it doesn't just fix itself. Um, and um, that didn't go over well. So by the time, but by the time the Berlin Wall fell, though, it was too late because I'd mentioned earlier all these 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 lists of journals you can publish in. Um, those were already established. And it's really, really hard, even when you think it ought to be changed, to change something that's so deeply ingrained. Um, we, we don't have a journal ranking system in our department. I hope we never do, because mm. um, we feel as if, if, it was a, if it was an article that was refereed, went out and you know, other professors read it, then okay, good enough. I mean, if you got one that, that, that would normally be, be ranked really high by the average economist, sure, we'll make an extra argument for you, you know, in, in your raise or whatever, but, but that's not the case. And even, I, I hate to say this, but, but even really tiny schools that no one even knows about have got yeah. like these, uh, I, I show my students when I'm, when I'm teaching the class based on, on that, that volume, um, that this one very small university, their econ department has like, oh, these are the five-point journals. These are the three-point journals. These are the one-point journals. Um, well, good Lord, if it's five to one to get in this journal versus this one, and, and you know, if you don't get tenure a after your first six years, then you're fired. They give it a nice name, but you're fired. So yeah. you have to, to, to work within this box. So, you know, during the Cold War, we had this active assault on any school of thought that might raise questions about the perfection of capitalism. And then by the time the Cold War is over, uh, we have, you know, made all these journalists uh, and macroeconomics in particular got more and more unrealistic to the point that even the people themselves in that school of thought don't want to pursue it anymore. So um, that's how I think neoclassicism became, you know, your original question was neoclassicism uh, and capitalism. Well, during the Cold War, uh, only things that were consistent with capitalism which, by the way, there, there are aspects of neoclassicism that would say, well, no, we shouldn't use the market in that context. But you kept your mouth shut, you know, during the Cold War. And so by the time we beat this out of all these people, um, we now have a school of thought that is full of people who think of themselves as liberal um, and yet nevertheless pushing this neo, uh, neoliberal uh, agenda. Uh, mm. And I, I was talking to, um, I don't know if you know Jamie Galbraith uh, at University of Texas. His, his father, John Kenneth Galbraith, was a very, very famous economist um, in, in the 70s at uh, Harvard. He was also uh, John F. Kennedy's, um, well, he, he, was, he was active in the government during, during the Depression uh, and um, the uh, uh, World War II. And then he was ambassador to India, I believe, under uh, uh, Kennedy. So and this is his son. And he's also an excellent economist. He's down at University of Texas. Um, and he, he held these conferences every now and then. He's, he's, uh, and... This was the end of the conference where we're all drinking beer. And I said to him, um, what do you think the chances are of saving the economics discipline? Oh, none. None whatsoever. There's nothing mm. we can do. It's mm. okay. Then what do we do instead? And he said, well, what we're doing right here, which was having a conference with policymakers, uh, with people, you know, there were a few economists, uh, Stephanie Kelton, Pavlina uh, um, uh, uh and uh, so forth. But mostly policymakers and, and, and lawyers. Uh, and I, I, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But, um, so, but economics is gone. It's, it's, it's dead. So, and, and I think that's probably right. Um, I don't know. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm more optimistic than I have been in all. How long have I been an economist? This will be my, thir this will be my 36th year, I think, at TCU. Uh, 
Uh, and way back in grad school, uh, I, a grad school colleague of mine, Chris Brown, he and I got invited to go out to lunch with Ann Mayhew, Terry Neal. Those are two really big names in institutionalism. And Paul Davidson, uh, who was a big name in, in post-Keynesian economics, and Alfred Eichner, also uh, in post-Keynesian economics. And so we just sat there in, in, in awe. And they started talking about, remember back when we thought we could make a change and then we didn't. And I thought, <laughs> great. I'm sitting here just starting my career and these giants in my schools of thought that I, I think makes sense saying that we didn't make a difference. Uh, but they did because they kept alive the ideas. I don't know if you've talked to any MMT people or Stephanie Kelton or uh, have, you, have you heard of Stephanie? Um, I haven't, but I, I know vaguely of MMT and have read around it, but um, modern right. monetary theory, it, yeah, not yet. Haven't cracked yeah, open so, that well, yet. Uh, she, um, uh, she had a, a volume that was on the New York Times bestseller list uh, that just came out, gosh, a couple years ago. Um, but she was taught by these people. They kept it alive. And, 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 and she was, of course, um, Bernie Sanders' chief economist. Uh, right. And so, oh, my God. Uh, you know, finally getting into the place where we can actually make a difference policy-wise. Of course, then the Democratic Party made sure he didn't win. Um, but nevertheless, and uh, I was just at a conference. Uh, I mentioned lawyers because uh, if, if the economic discipline is, is truly dead, then where are we going to get people who are going to be pushing ideas and policies that are more consistent with what we yeah. need to do to fix the planet and to fix income distribution and so forth? Um I was at the Levy Institute in, in, in New York, which is a, a sort of post-Keynesian think tank. And they had a, a summer school for, for uh, you know, people wanting to come and learn about this. And I was talking to, to Rowan uh, Gray, who's originally Australian, um, and he's a, he's a lawyer. And he says, think about this. He says, we're lucky to get, I don't know, 10 PhD economists in our school of thought a year on the planet. He said, if you got 10% of law school students, this would be a massive number of people. And he says, and so much of what this, our school of thought is talking about is, is, you know, sort of a realistic vision of the way the power structure actually works and how to get things done and so forth. And he says, lawyers, he has found are very open to the ideas of our school of thought. And well, yeah, of course it works that way. Um, mm. That makes sense because that's the way that the, the, the law is structured. So... I haven't gone anywhere with that, but, but it did make me feel good. I was like, okay, well, yeah. I mean, if econ is, is, is dead, um, then, and, and he's been organizing groups and so forth to try to get folks uh, on the side of a sort of more, more progressive politics, <clears throat> pardon me, more progressive economics. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it's depressing in some ways. It's like when you're talking about climate change, it's horribly depressing in some ways, but there are a few lights of hope, for example, the younger generation are sick and tired of the planet having been destroyed by my generation. Uh, and if they can only all get out and vote and the, and the, the Democrats not end up fixing the election, uh, then um, we could uh, make some progress. But I, I take hope from my students that I see and from my, my children, my daughters, are, their twins are 28 um, and, and their friends. I was like, okay. These people are not, you know, when, when I was in college in the 1980s, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Wall Street, 
with um, Charlie Sheen. Hang and... on, sorry, I have to, I have, to, I have to jump in and say something, Bill, oh, yeah, um, yeah. because you said you know the young people they need to go out and vote, and hopefully Democrats can you know get in and make changes. But I mean, surely part of the problem now is that all leading parties are kind of caught in the growth maxim paradigm, um, because it's been sold so well to the public that the vast majority of the public who do not have the time to sit and think about post-Keynesian economics and educate themselves right. about these kinds of things because they're trying to get food on the table. Um, this is the kind of the, the, the comfortable known that they will continue to vote for. So, I mean, surely we need, some, we, we need new narratives, we need new stories, we need new kinds of theories. Um, we need to be, I think it's really interesting that lawyers are uh, keen on a different kind of economics and a different kind of way of organizing because it's in the law it's written there already right, it's right. like we seem to be sort of functioning in this sort of shadow uh, reality like this mirror yeah. image of what the world actually is um so i'd be i want to understand more what you think about what can be done to change the current system that is you know see, seeing millions in developed country being plunged into poverty and like fuel poverty, po homing poverty, all this kind of thing. Right, and then right. also um, is exposing the most vulnerable nations in the world and most vulnerable peoples to the climate crisis because of e extractive capitalism. What right, do we do right. about all of this? Well, first of all, uh, you know, the election of Donald Trump, we can say a lot of things about that, uh, I think suggested that people are not okay with just the status quo, the, mm -hmm. the sort of mm -hmm. a, a, a politician. And my, my vision of, of Bernie Sanders was that, you know, this was the non-establishment um, candidate on the other side uh, yeah. and that would have been much more successful than Hillary Clinton. And even if he wasn't, I don't know, I, I guess the, the way I come down on that is um, if my car is broken down and I have to wait uh, to, to, to um, sort of schedule it to be repaired and I can easily get in uh, at the repair facility that I know won't fix it. Or I can try to get into the one that's going to fix it, but it's going to be harder to get my car in there. I kind of want the one that could possibly fix it. And that's the way I kind of viewed you know, sort, sort of the establishment Democrats. Okay, maybe, maybe, I'm not even convinced of that, but maybe they have a better chance of winning. But I don't know, uh, heading towards the cliff of, of, of climate change, I figured Trump had his foot on the gas um, mm. Biden would let up off the gas, but but Sanders would actually hit the brake, which is a really good yeah. idea. Maybe turn the wheel a little bit. So, yeah. so it, 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 but but you know, one of the things you said there, people don't know any other way. Um, it's hard for them to see. Well, I don't know. It, it, it's it's complicated. On the one hand, I don't know that people are necessarily using you know neoclassical economics to understand the world. Uh, in fact, I think maybe there's the problem. There's the problem. The group of economists who are advising both the Republicans and the Democrats are the same group. They're the same pool. Yeah. So even if they envision different problems, um, they're really just drawing from a slightly different part of, you know, of, of, of the same um, fundamentalist school that says, well, yeah, that'd be great, but you can't do that is what they're getting mm. from their advisors. I mean, uh, what's his name? Uh, Obama. I um, mean, you know, one of his uh, chairs of the Council of Economic Advisors was Christina Romer, who's no relation, by the way, to the Paul Romer I mentioned earlier. But um, she has a uh, an encyclopedia entry that I quoted from time and again. 
it's on business cycles, the, the, you know, the economy going up and down, up and down, it's facing a recession. And she says, really, there aren't business cycles and that economists believe the economy could stay at full employment forever. Um, so that's that whole thing going back to they think that it just fixes itself. This yeah. is the Democrats' economists, not the Republicans' yeah. economists, the Democrats' economists. So even as people begin to be disgusted with the way the world is and are, are going off towards Trump on one side and, and Sanders on the other, the people who end up advising them with very few exceptions, you know, I, I mentioned Stephanie Kelton with, with, with Sanders, but for the most part, um, they're the ones telling them, well, yeah, that is a problem, but, you know, we can't address it that way. Uh, we have to we have to work within the context of capitalism. They don't word it that way. They, just, you know, mm. they describe the solution that way. Um, mm. So uh, I don't know what to do other than what Jamie Galbraith was talking about in terms of we got to get right to the policymakers because we have to break the link between the economists who are saying this is the only way it can be done and, and the policymakers and, you know, get get that apart. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe interject ourselves in there. I'm not sure that that people would have a big problem with it, uh, especially as you know. <laughs> one of my colleagues, uh, his daughter said, "We just need you to die." Uh, she didn't literally mean for them to die, but she said, "In order to get the policies put in place that we want as younger people, we need you to st- stop voting or just be gone." Um, mm. And so I think that that especially younger people have a, I think a, a clearer idea of what the problems are. Um, but, uh, as long as those political parties in the U S for example, are being advised by those same economists who can't see past, uh, their, their training. And, and yeah. I don't, to some extent, I don't blame the politicians. I'm not going to make up my own economics. Uh, and if this yeah. is what, you know, this uh, person says, see what, uh, when I was in college, it was the eighties and it was, you know, greed is good. Uh, yeah. and it was, you know, Reagan Thatcher. Uh, and yeah. so we have this whole, well, I'm 61. Uh, so I graduated college in 83. So, you know, 61 to 50 or whatever, all these people grew up with with Reagan and Thatcher and thinking, you know, well, it's unfortunate, but these miners, you know, uh, uh, we've got to shut down the mines and, and God forbid we find something else for them to do. The market's supposed to do that. Um, mm. But yeah, so as I had a quick answer to your question, we got to break the link between the economics discipline uh, and the policymakers. And I think that's more possible now than it, than it has been before. Yeah, I think people are definitely crying out for um, a kind of change. But I think, you know, degrowth is a word that gets um, thrown around a lot. And degrowth is like when you look at what it's actually suggesting, it's amazing. But yeah. it is such a fundamental opposition to the world. It is painting a, a whole new world. Yeah, and right. the, what what I've been thinking about recently is that what is difficult about explaining a whole new world to people is explaining to them also by the time you get there, you will also be different. Like your reaction to it now is not the reaction that you would have right, given right, the right. five or 10 year period to get there. Like you will ad- have already adapted to so many different parts of it. Yeah. Um, and so I think when, you know, precarity is going through the roof and people just feel really, really insecure, they want to hold on to something uh, memorable, something um, from the past that was good. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's why Trump, you know, I actually don't think he wasn't an establishment candidate, but he wasn't a particularly radical candidate either. He didn't create a vision for America. He just said, let's make it great again. He just wanted <laughs> right. to go backwards into the past. He wanted to reindustrialize it. He wanted to essentially say to him, I think he won the vote because he said to a bunch, you know, working class America, um, hey, you know, it was better for you back then and we're just going to kind of hop in our time machine and that is totally right. feasible. 
And white right, because male. it's much more difficult to create a vision. Right. Sorry? White male working class America. Uh, yes, it is. It really yeah. was appealing yeah. to. Because yeah. some of yeah. the stuff that eventually got written off that he said early on. Uh, anyway, uh, but but yeah, so there, there's a, probably a lot of racism and, 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 and sexism involved in his, in his message uh, as well. Oh, God, yeah. Um, That's yeah. a given. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, um, talking about going to degrowth, and this is why I, I think sure. that, that the MMT stuff and, and, and the different school of thought is so important. Okay, so let's say that um, I am convinced that I don't need a new one of these, you know, every couple of years. Because quite mm -hmm. honestly, I haven't figured out what this one does yet. Uh, that, that's <laughs> going to be part of degrowth. I'm satisfied with it, you know? You, I, I your phone. Yes, that's right. I'm satisfied with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it breaks or something, that's fine. But otherwise, you know, I don't need to get a new one that has a camera that is marginally or even significantly better. But it's not, my eyes can't tell the difference anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's say we, we do that. What happens to the people who make cell phones? I mean, and this, this is what... If you continue to think in the context of capitalism and neoclassical economics, that becomes the problem. Like, well, yeah, yeah, but we destroy these jobs. Um, okay, fair enough. All right. So, and this is where the the, the Stephanie Kelton and the MMT stuff uh, and the post Keynesian stuff and the institutional stuff comes from. This all right? There are things that are socially useful, unprofitable. Great. Let the private sector do those things. Um, there are things that probably really aren't very social, socially useful, but profitable. Uh, and I'm gambling, for example, you know, so, oh, okay, you know, but we, we can, but there are many, many, many things that are socially useful and not profitable. All right. Mm -hmm. And those will never get done in our system. Never get done. Mm. Um, you know, well, I shouldn't say that They're on the scale that is necessary, uh, yeah. you know, climate, climate change, elderly care, which is going to become a bigger and bigger problem. Yeah. National health public education, all these things. So, okay, so the government does those. And um, so, well, but the government can't afford to do it. Well, of course they can. Um, <laughs> the United States can never become bankrupt in dollars, right? Because they make them up uh, as they go along. They, they, they make dollars on these, all right, right here. Keyboards. Yes, yeah, and they, and they do it all the time. Um, and, and the UK could do it too, because they're not in the EU. Uh, once you join the EU, things get really complicated and not necessarily uh, very good, um, as Greece found out. Because Greece had a lot of debt, but it was mm. in Europe. So it wasn't their currency. Uh, when Mexico had a financial crisis in 1994, it wasn't in pesos. It was in you know dollars that, that they couldn't pay back. So the government, well, World War II is the perfect example. Uh, there was... You know, right now there, there's this uh, opposition to the government becoming heavily involved or more heavily involved uh, in the economy because that's socialism. Uh, but in World War II, when the U.S. drove unemployment, it was still in double digits when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Um, and now and all of a sudden it becomes, you know, 1.8, 1.9% 1 by 43 or 44. There was no philosophical opposition because this isn't socialism. This is fighting for freedom. Um, yeah. Okay, but we could do the exact same thing, and we and we do it every day. Uh, you know, think of it this way: uh, for you know, every unemployed person is is receiving some income, and are are able to, with that income, go to a grocery store and take things off the shelf. Right? What if? And, and we should not, you know, rather than waiting around for the private sector to hire that person. In fact, let me back that up and, and use this example instead. Um, there's a lot of opposition over here on the left to things like self-checkout lanes. I don't know how, how popular that's become in the UK. But you know, you go, 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, and at the airport, you check yourself in and stuff. I love it because I'm an introvert. I've got my headphones in. I'm listening to music. I don't want to talk to anybody. I go to the self-checkout line. Uh, well, you're putting somebody out of work. Okay. Then do you bank at a bank that doesn't use computers? Because that's going to require a lot more people to keep track of everything if your bank doesn't yeah. use computers. Well, no, I don't do that. Well, then, so you're not against technology replacing labor, capital replacing labor. You're just against anything new. Why draw the line here? Why not draw the line 10 years from now? Where, or, or, or really, the more relevant question is, why are we using an economic system that punishes us for using the technology as much as we can use it? Why do we have an economic system that when you know a, a, a grocery store replaces three employees by putting in these self-checkout lanes, um, why can't we do that? Because yeah, but, but we're depending not... entirely on the market system to hire them back. Yeah. Because I was going to say, you know, the economic system does not punish us. Um, you know, it punishes uh, workers. Like it's right, the economic right. system is built to punish labor in order to drive down the price of labor and built to reward capital. Right. So capital is massively getting rewarded in that scenario. Right. And that's why the idea with my school of thought is that well, the government stands ready to hire mm -hmm. anyone who cannot find a job in the private sector at any time. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. um, we obviously can afford quote unquote afford because the food's there. You can't think in terms of money. You have to think in terms of resources. The housing is there. The food is there. The clothing is there because we don't let people starve um, when, when they are unemployed. So why not have them, why sit and wait for something that is likely to never happen? And that is to have that grocery store rehire the workers they laid off. Right? They're not going to yeah. do that. Uh, to, to, yeah. the, to the private sector, labor is a cost. So we have the government stand ready to you know, hire anyone who is willing to work we, uh, Pavlina Chernova has done tons of work on this and has a really nice book on it. Uh, and it's actually a relatively popular idea with people on the right and the left to do this. But boy, capital wouldn't like it because now think about this. Uh, we can get rid of the minimum wage laws in the United States because let's say that our government wage is $20 an hour. All right. So, okay. So I can work for McDonald's at $10 an hour, or I can work for the government at 20. Well, I know what I'm going to do. So McDonald's is going to have to raise wages. And I'm not going to play the same games in terms of race and, and gender. So all of a sudden, if I, in a disadvantaged class, can get a decent job with the government, then I don't have to worry about the private sector screwing me over. And it will put a lot of pressure on the private sector to um, reward labor fairly. I know fair is hard to define, but I know it's not what it is right now. Uh, and there's no reason we can't afford to do this. Furthermore, these people can be working in areas like climate change. Uh, mm. it, it's not all just digging ditches, although it can be. You can be training people. Uh, and the idea that, that Pavlina talks about is that if the private sector expands, great. The private sector has a, 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 um, a group of you know, trained people who have been working to draw from them for their labor. Uh, unemployed people have a very hard time getting a job, ironically, uh, that the longer they're unemployed, the more difficult it is to find a job because this is yeah. seen as a negative signal by, by the firm. So, okay, you, you don't have that anymore. There are pockets of chronic unemployment in, in every city. And have you ever seen the, the U.S. Um, series The Wire? Uh, set no, in, I haven't. Oh, my God. It, it's really good. Set in Baltimore and, you know, the drugs and so forth. And it would always be, and I keep saying to, my, to, my, to Melanie, my wife, 
um, it, until she asked me to stop talking about it. If only had a job <laughs> program, there wouldn't be all these unemployed, you know, kids in the inner city, and we wouldn't have to have the show. Um, because what else do they have? But you, you're you're a, a a young entrepreneurial person in this in this area of town. Well, I sell drugs. I mean that that's the way I work my way up. Um, and yeah. uh, wouldn't it be nice for another alternative? And there absolutely could be. It's, it sounds like it sounds like a, a green job guarantee, really, which is another degrowth policy. But I hadn't heard it be articulated through government, which I suppose it would have always had to be. Yeah, but then, yeah. does government want this though? Like, well, does government actually want it? Because arguably, government is doing such a bad job of governing its populace, apart from governing them into fear. Uh, you know, one could argue that they're not that interested in the well-being of their citizens, certainly in the economy. Like, let's stick with the UK and the US right now. Yeah. I mean, the UK just outlaw outlawed uh, protesting. You know, we don't we don't think they really care for their citizens over here. That's like when the EU said what Greece did when they had the referendum that said, we're not going to pay this back. Um, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Uh, this whole democracy thing doesn't trump. Uh, that, that's taken on a whole new meaning, hasn't it? But that doesn't <laughs> trump, um, you know, the European Central Bank. Um, but uh, what, what they want. Uh, no, that, that's why we need uh, older people to die. <laughs> because <laughs> we need them to stop voting. We, we need them. Because it's one thing to say that someone like Trump exists. This is the thing that, that that's so terrifying over here. It's one thing to say that he exists, but he lost. He lost the election. But all his followers are still here. All yeah. the people that thought it was an okay thing. So, and unfortunately, some of them aren't, aren't you know, hundreds of years old. Um, mm. But no, so long as the political system is the way it's working right now. Um, and I don't know what to do about that. I, uh, yeah. I'm, I majored in political science undergrad, but I did all the international stuff. I, uh, so that, that, that's a problem that, that you would really need to talk to Roland Gray, the, the guy that I mentioned earlier, the lawyer, um, who has worked in trying to get policy passed and so forth, has a very realistic sense of, of how that actually gets done under the current system. Um, but yeah, no, if we're going to push degrowth, there has to be an alternative for those people who are no longer, not, I remember how I got into this, who are no longer... Um, you know, working at the cell phone factory or who are no longer working in a, at a register at a store, there needs to be an alternative for them. Uh, yeah. And that's what it is. We should never, you know, by the way, uh, we, we talked about this at, at the um, conference I mentioned at the Levy Institute. And um, it was Roland Gray. Who, who I was on a panel with him. And he said he called our panel a mantle because it was all white males. And he says, you mm. know, we, we have to, 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 you know, do something about this. Um and of course, Stephanie and Pavlina are both women, so that that's really good uh, leaders in our in our movement. But um, but but you know, you also have to leverage your privilege because I'm really good with rich white men, uh, and so because because they'll listen to me and say, okay, if they're going to listen to me, I'm going to tell them. And and something that they don't react negatively to is we know in the private sector, labor's a cost, so the private sector has every reason to minimize the use of labor. And as new technologies are invented, or the, the grocery store, you go to the airport, you check yourself in, it says there's an excellent chance that, that the demand for labor will go down and down and down. So we need an alternative. And they're like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, it, it, that makes sense to them. And then you get around to the government spending part. Um, now, I, I say that. I mentioned earlier that you can't convince someone all at once. You have to let things sit with them. Uh, Melanie saw that particular talk, my wife, three times before she said, oh, now I get the whole thing. 
because it's such a change from the way we've been thinking so far. But I like to think I plant seeds of doubt in the minds of, of rich white men uh, <laughs> and, you know, make them think, okay, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to mention the fact that I also teach a class on the economics of race and gender because that's not going to go over well at all. Um, mm. But I'm going to mention, you know, the, these other things. So, so you know, uh, I guess, like I say, you know, leverage your privilege where you can, but absolutely mm. do what we can to get others involved in the movement. But again, it's a simple idea. Private sector doesn't um, want to hire workers if they don't have to, and that's liable to get worse and worse and worse. So what are we going to do instead? Well, the job guarantee is wonderful, especially because it can be focused on solving social problems. And there is yeah. no bigger social problem than climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I think it kind of feeds in or it seems like a, a stepping stone to that like solar punk uh, vision of the future, whereby um, we have loads of tech and tech isn't coming for our place in the world because we are not just commodities of labor. But rather, yeah. tech is there to uplift everybody so that everybody has more time to spend with their loved ones and their community and to create arts right, and all this right, kind of right. thing. Like We use tech to fulfill uh, our human existence, our lives, essentially. Right. Um, and if, you know, a job guarantee would be fixing social issues, that seems like the close, you know, a little marginal step towards that solar punk vision. Um, but it does seem to be. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I've never heard of the solar punk vision. I, I, I just finished playing Cyberpunk 2077, uh, <laughs> computer game, and that's not a very happy vision of the world. Uh, solar but, punk uh, is lovely. It's yeah, really, really yeah. lovely. Uh, for anyone listening, there's a lovely subreddit on Reddit of solar punk. Oh. And yeah, 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 yeah. And they have a manifesto and everything. Right. Um, but does it not mean, and everything that you're saying, does it not mean, eventually, does the private sector not just have to go eventually? No, I don't think so. Th think about this. Um, let's say we've got an economy that, that is, you know, mostly job guarantee oriented social. And by the way, you know, I mean, what the hell did we do for thousands upon thousands of years as, as homo sapiens? But, but you know, we, we hunt, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not an anthropology major. Uh, my, my other daughter, who isn't here right now, uh, was, but uh, I'm not. But you know, I, okay, so I'm picturing baboons, all right, mm -hmm. wandering through the savannah. And they're, they're, you know, hunting and gathering. Most of what they're doing really is socializing. Uh, and, and, and that's what, you know, we want to end up doing is, is sort of socializing. And that's what you're describing, a world where the technology allows us more freedom to socialize. Uh, yeah. Because that's the ultimate, you know, human. I mean, that's why people drank Kool-Aid at the, you know, Jonestown compound is the, is the social pressure that they felt to want to belong to something. That, that this is where... Uh, institutionalism, the, the stuff founded by Veblen and neoclassical economics are most different. To um, institutionalists, one of the absolute prime drivers is that we are social animals and we want mm. to copy the behavior. We want to be a member of a tribe. Mm. Um, and when you, you know, when you understand it that way. So, but, but let's say that most of what's going on is, is, you know, sort of job guarantee type stuff. But I'd like to start a bookstore, you know, uh, and it's not, it's not something that's vital to the economy. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going to make a profit. That's always the problem. Uh, but you know, or restaurants, you know, that, 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 um, I, I could see a role, uh, for, cause, cause not Exxon and, and not, not Citibank, but your small time entrepreneurs, I kind of view them as, as almost undertaking a creative act. Um, yeah. where were, oh, Melody and I, the other night 
went to a jazz club uh, that, that's fairly new here in town um, and called Pinky's Champagne Room or something like that. And, and we're looking around at all the, the art work that they had done and so forth to create this place. And I know that the, the people who own that place were not thinking to themselves, man, we're going to get rich. They're thinking, I want to create something that becomes a focal point uh, for our community. Uh, and I want to meet and talk to people. And I, I think that, 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 you know, the market system can be a place that, you know, also fulfills the social need for, for, um, you know, connecting with other people too. Mm -hmm. So no, not that, but not to the point where, you know, every time there's a recession, we have, you know, billions of people out of work and so forth, but I can see it as a supplementary. Yeah. Mm. And with a really nice, um, what do you call it? A safety net. To where if you screw up and it didn't work, it's not the end of your life. Uh, so yes, yeah, I, I, I can still see it there somewhere. Okay, so maybe a private sector, but a private sector that prioritizes, I don't know, um, improving the localized community or like localized private sectors rather than just being for profit, you know, machines, which if you're lucky become monopolies and then you get to be a billionaire while everybody else. Right, is right. And in fact, that feeds <laughs> back into what you said earlier. That, that by the time we have this world, your ideas of what are right and just and fair will have changed. And mm. so therefore, what is profitable will have changed. Uh, mm. What is profitable will be things that bring th people together and so forth, like this this place where they have you know live music every night, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so I'll be dead by then, but uh, I'll be very hopeful <laughs> for the rest of you. So <laughs> by the way, when, you know, we're thinking of moving to Ireland in retirement. And so one of the things I've been checking is what is climate change expected to do to Ireland? Mm -hmm. We're not mm -hmm. buying property on the coast. That's for sure. Yep. Um, so yep. 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 It's, it's meant to be one of the better places though, because it's an Island, uh, which essentially is this whole, you know, you'll be safe from the climate refugees, uh, <laughs> modeling, <laughs> which is yeah, awful and terrible. It's the same New Zealand as well. New Zealand and Ireland are the two top two destinations for people who are oh. afraid of, uh, climate change. Um, and I think even sort of having these models and, and maps and articles is really disgusting because it yes. just means that the yeah. people who are able, who have access to right. moving, like, you know, the privileged can go and run away while everybody yeah. else in the world, you know, yeah. suffers. It's climate really. apartheid is what they've talked about. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a great term. Um, yeah, yeah, I yeah. can't remember who said that now, but I could have the chapter in my book on, 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 uh, Ecological economics uh, mm. talks about that. Have you seen the TV? I keep going back to this. That's where they connect with TV series. Um, Altered Carbon um, is, I think, on Netflix, and it is a dystopian future where the where the rich have come up with a technology to where they can live forever, and they live up in the clouds. And uh, there, and meanwhile, on the on the uh, everything's a slum on on the surface of the planet. And mm. I'm like, well, that's what we're headed towards uh, right there, is that the rich will protect themselves from all these problems and have these you know, mansions in the sky. Um, and 100%. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think the vision I always wrestle on about on the show is um, biosurfdom. I think that, you know, the carbon budgets will be bought up by the 0.01%, the resource budgets and all this stuff. Right. And every other citizen will be reduced to a biosurf kind of right, funding right, right. And, and fulfilling the lives of yeah. the elite. I mean, it's Especially kind of what is it already in capitalism, but yeah, yeah, no, exactly, yeah, yeah. <sighs> but we've discussed some alternatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, yeah. I think, I think there's hope. 
Um, the thing I always say is like the amount of people that I speak with who are actively working on the problem fills me with hope every right, single day. Right, and right. I think that's something that needs to be shouted. These are the stories that need to be told, that it is possible to change. Right. We are creatures of change. Um, yeah. And there's a whole, there's whole communities out there trying to figure it out. I hope so. I hope so. I, I think you're right. As I mentioned earlier, I'm far more hopeful now than I have been at any time uh, mm. being being an exiled economist that, that isn't allowed into the, the main group. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's more and more possible for me to say something and somebody to listen and for me to have somebody to listen to. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that, that's positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. John, thank you so much for your time. This is really, really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, um, thank you very much. My final question is, who would you like to platform? Well, that's an easy question. Stephanie Kelton, uh, number one, she's done extremely well over here in terms of getting the word out. And she's tireless. She's done a lot of work on the Green New Deal. Uh, and practically, how do we apply this? How would it work on a local level and so forth? Um, and then Rowan Gray would be very interesting because yeah. uh, uh, coming uh, from a different perspective as a lawyer and talking about, um, and I have many more names too, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll just email you the rest. <laughs> Wonderful. John, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And may the force be with you. <laughs> may the force be with you too. If you want to learn more about John's work, I've put links to his books over on planetcritical.com, where you can also subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked the episode, please leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who make all of this work possible. Thank you everyone for listening, and I will see you next week.